How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. You would think after after a break that we would have so many stories to tell each other, but nothing's happening in the world, so I don't really. There would be lots is happening in the world. Um, yeah, but nothing that we want to talk about. This show is an escape from all that shit. Yeah. So, I mean, literally since since the holidays, I have just seen my wife and I've been in this house and that's it. I didn't do anything special on New Year's. No parties of 100 or more gathered into a single building. I just watched it at home with my dogs. I watched the um, I watched the one on Fox that was it was Joe McHale and Ken Jeong were hosting it. And it was a fucking train wreck. That's so last year I remember watching it. Here's what happened to me too is I remember were you here the one year we had a party and it was like Jamie was here and like other people and it was uh Pitbull performed for like 20 minutes or 30 minutes or something <laughs> like that. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I just remembered that only because this year whichever channel I chose first Pitbull was performing again. And I'm like, this is not my New Year's. This yep, is every not, this is how you ring it in every year. I'm just Mr. always Mr. Worldwide. It ain't a new year, year if Pitbull <laughs> don't perform. And uh, so I changed it. Last year I watched the CNN, and it annoyed the shit out of me because because uh, they were drunk. They were drunk. Ander- Anderson Cooper and the other guy. Yeah, the other guy was hammered. I don't know his name. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. Well, Ken Jeong on the Fox one was definitely hammered. And they were like awkwardly dancing on a stage in a building that clearly had no audience. And then they would cut to Times Square and it was Kelly Osborne, who I don't think was drunk because I think she's sober, but she still acted kind of drunk because that's just the natural <laughs> Osborne way. That's their personality. And, and, and her, her, her co-host there on location was Jason Biggs. And let me tell you, the banter between the two of those was cringeworthy. So because of... Anderson Cooper, I always feel bad because I should. I feel like you're just supposed to automatically support Anderson Cooper, but the because of last year, I was like, these guys are hammered ass drunk, and it's annoying watching because I'm not hammered ass drunk. <laughs> and uh, this year, I turned on CNN again after the Pitbull thing. I went to CNN, and there they were again, hammered ass drunk. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, just within like five minutes, I knew. Like I was like, this is. This is the same as last year. CNN. I mean, God bless them that they can get paid to just get fucking wasted That's on television. Must be fun, yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, uh, so I changed it again, and I think I ended up with uh, ABC, if I'm not mistaken, because it was on Hulu or something, or maybe I went with NBC. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It the doesn't matter is, at all. Yeah, Carson Daly was hosting it. So I was. Oh, that's the Dick Clark one. That's on ABC. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I was transported back to 98, rang it in with Carson Daly and and his co host. I can't remember her name, but she was in a segment with the dude. 
they they did a a video about how the balls, the New Year's balls are made. The farmer that was making that bred them, they treated it like it was on a farm and they bred them like they were cattle. Oh, so they're doing a bit. So they're doing a bit. And the guy, the farmer was played by Big Pussy and uh from the Sopranos. From the Sopranos. <laughs> yeah. And uh if ever I was gonna cast someone as a farmer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he seems like a farmer. And the whole bit was just sweaty sh- balls, but just about the balls, the New Year's balls. It's like, oh, wow. I love your balls. They're so huge. Oh, look at my balls. Like, oh, my balls can do anything. And like, uh, the just, uh, comedy, the height of comedy. Yeah, which was like funny for sweaty sh- sh- balls. But then this yeah, was that like, was 20 years ago. I know. And this More was like a ago. 10 to 15 minute segment that you're like wow you've this has been done and better and not this long (laughs) it was just it was a lot Uh, of cringe and then they threw to the goo goo dolls who look plastic now and i uh johnny resner resner resnick resnick yeah uh looks like he's slowly morphing into mickey rourke it does. He does. It looks exactly <laughs> looks like that. Like post surgery, post boxing career, plastic surgery. Mickey Rourke. Yeah, he's slowly morphing into him. It's it's just too bad because uh, well, you wanted banter. Here we are. Uh, it's just <laughs> too bad because you know they. He was a good looking guy, and uh, I, you know I don't want to body shame anybody, but I don't. There's just some people that you see them, and you're just like Jesus. That is too much. Yeah. too much how do you how why like why can't you just be old yeah just <laughs> embrace embrace your age uh this is going to be really fun banter for our listeners who um hear us discussing uh new year's eve when this episode drops on like january 14th <laughs> yeah so you can tell we record early sorry uh guess what spoiler alert uh Death Rides a Horse took place before New Year, uh, <laughs> and we wished you a Happy New Year on that one. But Happy New Year again. And A little peek behind the scenes. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's a podcast dedicated to the history and evolution of cult and genre movies. I'm Gary Horn. I'm Justin Bishop, and we are sadly missing our third co-host today, Mr. Todd Davis. Not because he uh, is in Asheville or forgot about us or anything this time. Todd is is trying to recover from a little bout of uh, of of covid-19 unfortunately Todd's not feeling very well today so everybody you know hopefully by the time you're listening to this he's fine uh but you know send your well wishes out to Todd he's not feeling very well today he was going to try to power through it but then he decided he needed to throw up instead yeah so he fucked around and found out i guess yeah so there he is so, all those comedy clubs Todd yeah you know. it's a it's a bummer but you know we're going to have to I'll do this one without him. Maybe when Todd comes back, hopefully next week, we'll be able to get his th- some short thoughts on this week's film from Todd. Because I know he watched it because he was very excited to watch this movie and this entire series. So I know he's uh, actually watched this week's and next week's movie already. So we'll at least get his thoughts at some point in the future on what we're talking about today. But this is week two of our, uh, our series called The Six Degrees of Kill Bill. Uh, these are films that have... Uh, been noted as inspiration for Quentin Tarantino's 2004 film Kill Bill. And uh, last week, you know, it's funny because when I was making this list of movies, there's a lot that I could have chosen. And we kind of discussed this off the air after our last episode, Gary, but 
there's a lot, you know, I could have, there are probably 25 movies that are somewhat referenced in Kill Bill, but I tried to pick the ones that were more direct influences, like where you can see exact shots or, or bits of music and things like that, that are taken directly from these films by Quentin Tarantino and used in Kill Bill. And it's pretty easy to see all of those, as especially as we watch these movies, if you're familiar with Kill Bill, and it's a movie that I've seen uh, more than most more than most movies. Last week, you know, we discussed Death Rides a Horse, Spaghetti Western, and we pointed out a handful of very specific things that Quentin Tarantino was culling from that movie. Things like, the, of course, the Ennio Morricone score, which he uses in his film, to nearly like exact images, some of the background of characters, things like that. But I think of every film that we're going to discuss on this series, I think none of these films influences felt as strongly as the film that we're discussing this week which is Toshia Fujita's 1973 revenge film Lady Snowblood It was from a better time, a time before coronaviruses, uh, a time when if you were going to die, it was going to be because someone randomly wanted to stab you in the street. It just, yeah, or, things were or, simpler because, <laughs> or because they were exacting their revenge on you for killing their, your father and brother and raping and murdering your mother. Yeah, I'd like to think I'm not going to do any of those things, but, <laughs> you know, I'm still young. Lady Snowblood began its life as a 51-issue comic book series that was published between February 1972 and March 1973. That series was written by prolific manga author Kazuo Koiki, who also created Lone Wolf and Cub, which is a movie that we're actually going to discuss a little bit in a couple of weeks. And uh, it was illustrated by Kazuo uh, Kamimua. Now, I am going to do my best with these Japanese names, Gary. I'll go ahead and say that off the bat. I don't oh, want same. Anyone, uh, I don't I'm want just, anyone I'm struggling with that and not doing the Japanese accent. Or, do not know, do that. This is 2021, Gary. Yeah. We have left that sort of thing in the past. Uh, but I, I, I did look up pronunciation on some of these to make sure I tried to be respectful of people's names that I'm not used to uh used to pronouncing but i will almost surely fuck up at some point while trying to do this so you know give me some slack i'm you know doing my best so this magazine or this this comic was originally published in a magazine called weekly playboy which uh, is not actually connected to playboy but like its american namesake was considered an adult magazine and, and although like playboy you know, it also included columns, it included interviews with celebrities, and it included fiction, including a lot of manga. 
Uh, actually, I look, I went down a, a little bit of a rabbit hole on this, Gary, because I'm like, well, they have Playboy there, right? So this one's called Weekly Playboy. The actual Playboy, the one owned by Hugh Hefner that is published in Japan is called Monthly Playboy, just to oh. make sure people are aware. <laughs> That's weird. So there's no, well, first of all, here's Justin with the, uh, I just read it, I'm just buying it for the articles argument. No, I'm so, not saying that. I'm not saying that as an <laughs> argument. I'm saying that it that those things do exist within the confines of the magazine. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's weird they don't have any lawsuits for that. But uh, yeah, it is kind of odd. But you know. in regards to the manga, though, there's some cool stuff to point out with that. I think that probably some of what would have caught the attention of a uh, Akuda uh, uh, producer. But uh, besides being like a really cool Japanese story or I'm sorry, Japanese revenge story. The story has like a lot of focus on the history of Japan, which I think gives it like even more weight and would have been yeah. more relevant and meant something to the people. More uh, so than like Americans watching it in 2003 when we all discovered it. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. So it like covers like all of this uh, uh, Meiji era. It was like a rich period for Japan, but they had an emperor that lorded over everything. And uh, it, so it focuses a lot on that stuff, not unlike you know, movies we even see now where it's like people are rushing to reinvent society and then people get buried and uh, there's the caste system. Uh, Koiki, uh, is that how you said it? Koiki? Yeah, that's how I said it. Yeah. Uh, would, you know, he, he was talking about in the interview on the Criterion thing about uh, there was a caste system, like they were coming right out of that where it was like samurai farmers, artisans and merchants. And, uh, but basically like this sounds similar to something now that it's like samurai could just like, kill somebody in the street if they just felt like it basically yeah. and so you just you know nobody would question it because they were the authority and so when you have a hierarchical hierarchical system like that it forms vendettas uh when things start to be when society starts to be bending against you and uh so you've got constant fighting and of course revenge anyway i just thought that was interesting from from the thing like how much focus he seemed to have on that society and just his interest yeah. in, in the hierarchy there. Also, just as a side note, just the fact that uh, uh, Shira Yuki uh, translates into Snow White. And yeah, uh, yeah. And, and the well, the Japanese title for the comic was uh, Shira Yuku Hime, so which is a play on, yeah, their term for Snow White. Yeah, so Yuki comes from that. Then, yeah, Asura, like the Asura demon, that's like one of Buddhism's five paths. And yeah. uh, that's the most grueling path. And just, I don't know, just neat stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's very, it's, it's very, uh, this was a really fun one to look into because there is, I, I delved, like it sounds like you did, Gary, into a lot of the history side of things uh, because I don't know, it, it, once you know that context of the film, I think that it adds like, I mean, it is a, just a badass revenge movie on its own surface level. But once you dive into that stuff, like it brings on a whole different aspect of the film, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. It's just, it's fun. It's, it's, it's cool to know that context because uh, I, like you said, I mean, for Japanese people or especially Japanese people during the time this movie came out, even maybe it, I don't know. I don't know if people even in Japan right now have the cultural context for like when this was made or what they were going for. But uh, it's just kind of interesting that thought much thought went into the process for what normally should be just a uh, exploitation movie. Well, in a comic book that was pu being published in a, well, yeah, in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a adult magazine. Right. <laughs> so the film adaptation was produced by uh, Kikamara Okuda of Tokyo films 
uh, which was an independent produ- production company. Although Toho, which is of course one of Japan's leading film studios, would end up distributing the film ultimately. And Akuda's director was an unlikely choice. It was a veteran filmmaker by the name of Toshia Fujita. So Fujita was born to Japanese parents in 1932 in an area of North, uh, in, in an area of Korea that is now known as North Korea. And he began his career in the mid 1950s at a studio called Nikatsu. So Nikatsu has a very rich and very long history in Japan. It's actually Japan's oldest major film studio, having been founded in the silent era back in 1912. And the mid-1950s is what many film scholars consider Nikatsu's golden age, uh, most notably due to the production of their internationally flavored action films directed by such filmmakers as Seijun Suzuki, who's incredibly famous. You know, we watched this movie on uh, Criterion and Suzuki's got a couple of films on the in the Criterion collection. Uh, Nakashi Nomura and Toshio Mosuda. So Mosuda in particular was incredibly prolific as a director and he developed a reputation as a consistent box office maker. Uh, in the decade between 1958 and 1968, he made an astounding 52 films for Nikatsu. That's a film every two weeks, basically. I mean, that's insane. Well, you, you know, he's 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 playing to a smaller audience, so I'll give him credit there. Like he's just, <laughs> you know, probably probably not American audiences, right? Like I don't I don't want to take anything away from. Uh, no, I mean, well, I mean that that's also in the in the fifties and sixties. A lot of films were filmed on a very much smaller uh, time frame. I mean, that that's something that you hear about it. Even you know, you, we talk about what Roger Corman and stuff. Roger Corman will make a movie in a week, and that's kind of what he's doing here. Like he's, but it's still impressive considering the quality of his films he's not making cheap little monster movies like like someone like roger corman's making he's making like legit films no I'm, so, I'm i'm not judging him i spent you know most of new year's watching horror movies and eating too much candy so i wish that i had the life of masudo <laughs> so it was under director's like Masudo, that Toshia Fujita got his start first working as an assistant director, then later as a screenwriter, and he quickly established himself as a very talented and essential member of the Nakatsu production line uh, when he won an award for adapting the Yukio Mishima novel Thirst for Love in 1967. So that, that was a big hit, and it was not long after that that Fujita began his own career as a director, directing entries in the Juvenile Delinquent and Stray Cat Rock series, Uh, which are kind of these youth-oriented action films. And both of those series marked his first association with an actress by the name of Mako Kaji. So Fujita would soon start to specialize in, I I read this really good essay by this film scholar named Mark Walker, who also actually produced those interviews on the Criterion Collection. He he was responsible for those. So he's very much an expert in this. And a lot of the behind the scenes, the scenes material on this that we found came from, from this guy. So a big, uh, we owe a great <laughs> deal of gratitude to, to Mark Walklow because the otherwise information on this without his work would have been very, very hard to find. But he described these films that Fujita was doing as edgy realist youth films about aimless young people who were misunderstood by their parents generation so that, that's a that's something that's a pretty far cry from the kind of standard more for, formulaic nikatsu action films that were being produced by other filmmakers he is a john hughes of japan that's that's 
<laughs> That's what he was. And Fujino was, inc- I mean, he was very prolific. He even dabbled in directing entries in Nukatu's line of Roman porno erotic films in the early 1970s. And that is another rabbit hole we could easily go down looking into uh, the, these Roman porno series, which are specifically the films that the, the adult films that Nikatsu was directing, but they were part of this whole movement of Japanese pink films. That'll be the next series we do. Japanese pink films. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're interested, you could find a lot of information out there. Synapse films have put out compilations of Roman porno and Japanese pink films. So if it's, it's a very, I don't know how, you know, I've never seen any of the movies. I don't know what, I can't speak to the quality of them, but it's a fascinating piece of Japanese film history. Cause what it was is basically a lot of filmmakers would, uh, they were given a lot more artistic freedom sometimes to do what they wanted in these films. Cause the producers didn't care what they were doing as long as they include included some TNA, you know, cause they knew that would sell the tickets. So, uh, and I mean, Fujita in particular produced a couple of these movies that, by all accounts are very good films and like very high quality, especially considering the, uh, the other films, you know, that were being produced at the time, the other Roman porno films, a lot of which were just, you know, essentially pornography, uh, soft core pornography, but his apparently have, you know, he's got that same through line of like disenfranchised youth that he had in like his stray cat movies and things like that. He's just having to throw in a sex scene here and there. So despite his successful career, Nothing that Fujita had directed before would make him an obvious choice to direct the Lady Snowblood adaptation. And yet he was specifically chosen for the job by the film's producer, Kukumaru Okuda. So keep in mind, this wasn't, this film was not an an Akatsu production, but was produced independently. So he wasn't, you know, this was a time when directors would work specifically with one studio in Japan. He worked with Nikatsu, although he had the option to work outside of that studio unlike say in the studio system of the thirties and forties in in Hollywood, but this was not one of those movies. So he was, it was not like he was given the job by the studio he worked for, like a producer came to him directly and said, I want you to do this movie. Another interesting choice was the screenwriter, uh, Norio Osada. So he was hired to write the adaptation and nothing he had done before called him to, to direct a lurid, hyper-violent comic book adaptation. You know, Before Lady Snowblood, he was known for writing Yakuza films for directors like Kenji uh, Fukasaka, who did The Battles Without Honor and Humanity, which uh, Miko Kaji also appeared in, I think, the second one of those, if I remember. Really good films. Uh, if you haven't seen Battles Without Honor and Humanity, I, I recommend checking those out. I think they're on Shudder. They were at one point. So Osada and Fujita knew each other personally. They were friends. They'd never worked before, and they, they were even employed by competing studios but in in an interview that's on that criterion blu-ray with osada he kind of speculates that the answer as to why he was hired might lie in the motivations of the producer okuda so okuda was inspired to buy the rights to the lady snowblood comic because of another manga to film series that not only featured another lead female that was on the roaring rampage of revenge but another one that stars the very same actress maiko kaji Kaji had begun her career at Nikatsu as well and left the studio because we mentioned before she was in those Stray Cat movies, but she left the studio for its rival, Studio Toei. Because, and she basically did this because Nikatsu started shifting their focus to producing those Roman porno films, and she just didn't want to be a part of that. Those Stray Cat rot films had made her a star, which led to Toei seeking her out for the lead in a new film that they were doing called Wandering Ginza Butterfly. So that was supposed to be like the start of a franchise that didn't pan out. I think they did two movies total, but a new director by the name of uh, 
Shunya Ito saw Koji's, uh, Kaji's performance and saw that she had a lot of potential and cast her as the lead in his debut film, which was an adaptation of a comic book series about a female prisoner named Scorpion. So that was the female convict Scorpion series. And it ran for four films from 1972 to 1973 and was a huge hit, both critically and commercially. And if you haven't seen those films, again, highly recommended. I, they are, they're pretty awesome, honestly. When the producers of Lady, uh, of Lady Snowblood started courting Kaji for their film, she'd already said that she was like no longer interested in continuing the Scorpion series. And she was kind of getting tired and disenfranchised with the idea of playing in these violent roles and exploitation films. I mean, but, what else is she supposed to do? You won't do Porto. You won't kill people on screen. So what other movies actress. can you do? She wanted to be a serious actress. Uh, it, but she liked the idea of working with Fujita again. They had become friends on, you know, and when they had done the Stray Cat Rock series. And they developed a good working relationship. They had a good uh, rapport. So that might answer the question as to why he was hired to direct a film that seems to be so far out of his wheelhouse and why they hired Osada to write the film. Because one, Osada and Fujita were friends. Fujita and Kaji had worked together and were friends. So this kind of is all the... Okuda is working together, the producer's working together to get all these people who want to work together or have some sort of previous relationship to get what he wants out of the film. Because what he really wants is Miko Kaji in the lead. You know, so this was kind of his roundabout way of getting it. He also, um, on, on that Criterion interview, Osada says that the producer, like him and Fujita, their writing and directing style, the type of films that they made were so different. I think he calls it like oil and water. Yeah. That that the producer, Okuda, thought that, you know, bringing them together, these two very different styles would create something kind of magical because they shouldn't mix. But if they do, then it could be something really special. Well, because Vegeta's like doing teen angst movies, right? Uh, essentially, you know, and uh, people, Osada describes it as like uh, he was used to capturing youth and the struggle with youth and in their mind, no way to release it. How do they describe how they feel? All of that stuff. So Akuda could have been thinking about that with Osada's making these, he knows violence. And it sounds like everything you read, the earlier stuff regarding Japan that uh, Koiki was attempting in the manga, Osada seemed to latch right onto that as well. Yeah. Uh, and he's used to violence. And so there's like a lot of, a lot of stuff that that works really well in this that lightning in a bottle thing almost i mean because when you see like that osada interview i mean he talks a lot about the modernization of society and how it's evolving and that can bring both light and shadows i think is how he puts it uh what gets discarded by modernizing the site society there's always going to be parts that get buried or mistreated or that become vengeful and that kind of thing and they can you know try to people try to move forward and forget that existed but that's going to come back and seek revenge it's also i think one of the reasons osada talks about it in, in some stuff that he's had authors of novels he's adapted you know hate him or think he ruined the story but that didn't happen in lady snowblood you know i think the author here just trusted him to to get it right but i like osada uh, he he seems like an interesting guy to hear speak and to hear him talk about stuff like like you know he tells the story about how him and Fujita, you know, there's a tradition in Japan that you you go hunker down in an inn and hang out together and uh, figure out the objective of the film. And he, but he's like pretty candid about this. Like, well, what you end up doing is getting drunk together and gambling a lot, and you're just kind of <laughs> kind of hanging out. He says, but through that, you start to learn each other and where your head's at, 
and what you think about the film in general. So you get kind of an idea of what the focus is going to be. He even says like Vegeta hates scripts. So that was already a, an issue. He likes everything to be more hazy, I guess, so he could have more freedom in what he's trying to do and play around with it. And even though he and Osada were friends, he didn't even like the script that Osada, he told Osada, it's all you, You, this is your job, you make the script, then didn't like Osada's script. And it wasn't until they were out at another bar later with one of their other uh, filmmaker friends, uh, Fukasaku, I believe was the name. He said that he knew Fujita wasn't a fan, so he'd given it to Fukasaku to read. And Fukasaku, while they were drinking, just like talking, he was telling Fujita like, man, this script's great. Like, if you're not going to make this, I'm going to. Like, this is, this is awesome. And so Fujita was immediately like, no, 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 this is mine. I'm making it. And so it was uh, interesting. Osada seemed to take like a personal interest in it. He like worked his way on set, was there the whole time, like just as a uh, moral support, like is how he convinced everybody. And he was friends with some of the actors and that sort of thing. But he also wanted to help be in the ear of Fujita, like during the time and like yeah. get it right. But he gives full credit to Fujita, by the way, just for what does work is that what he's used to capturing works really well for Lady Snowblood, that Kaiji is reluctant to be in the film in the first place. She doesn't want to do the revenge film. And he said, you can see that on her face. There's like parts of it, the direction that she doesn't agree with or, you know, whatever that she, she wears it really well. And like her face is hiding sometimes her disappointment in certain things or the way that things are progressing in the story. And he says that he feels like Vegeta is really great at capturing those facials and like just yeah. seeing all of that stuff. So it, it actually was a brilliant move on the part of uh, the producers. Yeah, it, it really was. And he talks often in that interview about the genius of Okuda. Uh, you know, about how he he was kind of orchestrating all this behind the scenes, but it worked because the final film works very, very well. Also, it probably helped them get Kaji by, uh, they, they did offer her a contract to sing the film's title song because she was kind of, she had a burgeoning music career that she was trying to get to take off. So uh, she gets to sing the film's theme song, which is there in the opening credits of the film and was later used by Quentin Tarantino, of course. So he helped her music career take off and she's a pop star in Japan now. No, I don't. I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> I thought you had <laughs> looked into her later career. I actually didn't. So <laughs> no, she's still making movies. I looked her up. I mean, she just kind of she took like a hiatus at one point for a little bit, but she shows up in TV shows and other stuff. But I mean, she's been working, I mean, here recently like she's still she's still just busting her ass as an actress well lady snowblood was released in japan on december 1st 1973 modern reviews meaning reviews that are out now in the age of the internet are almost universally positive if you read them uh, it currently sits at 100 percent on rotten tomatoes but there are only like seven logged reviews on the on the site but there are lots of retrospectives especially when like the criterion blu-ray came out even when the dvd came out in, in like the mid-2000s after Kill Bill kind of let Western audiences know about this film, essentially. Uh, a lot of those reviews, I mean, they're all pretty universally positive. Uh, unfortunately, reviews from the time of the film's release are hard to come by. Uh, they're, they're, they're hard to find because it got, you know, very little of a release here in the States at all. And reviews of movies like this in the mid-70s were, if they existed at all, they have not been preserved. But I'm wondering, Gary, if you can shine a light on what some of the internet's best amateur reviewers might think of the film. 
Oh, well, I'm glad you asked because there are definitely a few people that were not fans of this film, probably after watching it uh, when it was referenced by Quentin Tarantino as well. They weren't writing on IMDb in 1970. So, the, <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely somebody needs a nap. So the interesting part with Lady Snowblood is that I will say this, very few one star reviews I could find yeah. anywhere. Very few. So I've got a couple of those. The next level up, now you can find two star reviews but they're legitimately very well written. <laughs> it's like it's actually, it's actually really smart people. It seems like writing it, so it's not. It doesn't make for nearly as much fun to make fun of them. <laughs> so it's because uh, you're like, wow, these people really did watch the movie and have some thoughts and analysis yeah. to offer. <laughs> and they're just it's not just like somebody crying about there being subtitles and right, exactly. Oh, the like, blood color's not realistic. <laughs> like our number one here is from John H who gave it one star. And his comment is too fakey Japanese. Too fakey. Wow. You know, I didn't even, I don't know. I don't know what he was going for there, but yeah, that's what I don't saying. like it either way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other one here. Let's was see. Was that his whole review? That was the whole review. Oh, <laughs> that was it. Yeah, that was, that was it. That's too what he said. Too fakey Japanese. Was his too entire fakey review. Japanese. And then uh, there's GH Cheese 9 who says the, the title of his review is When It's So Bad, Everyone Calls It Art. And his review is The acting is so bad, you would have thought they were in a children's play. The fight scene was so bad, you'll wish you were stabbed with the sword so you won't have to watch the rest. The story itself is so bad, you would think it was written by a bunch of 11-year-old boys. I saw the rating, and I saw the reviews. I had to watch it. I'm guessing the reviews were written by some of the film students who think they're all knowledge and will make you watch bad movie after bad movie while they explain to you the concept of art in movies. Wow. That is that is what he said. It's an angry young man. Yeah. I mean, seriously, like, th th here you go. Th I'm just going to do this. This is an example of a two-star review, though, for this. It's called Film Buffs Be Warned. It's from Sky 2. Don't get me wrong. I love a cheesy samurai film as much as the next guy. However, this one is more cheese and more low budget than most. Kaiji Maiko, who had starred in three of the cult phenom Sasori films, chose the scenery as the title character, raised for the sole purpose of avenging the death of her parents at the hands of a group of leering outlaws. The twist of having a female play the cold-blooded sword person might sound intriguing, but it can't compensate for the hammy acting, poor photography, sappy Inca ballads, a villain straight out of the silent movie era, and slapdash plotting that looks like what it is, a condensed version of a longer story that tries to compensate with extended narrative. The whole film has the feel of a quickie that was made to cash in on the original comic series and attempts by the filmmakers to appeal to the broader crowd are just plain awkward. Not convinced? This movie, based on a comic by creator of the Lone Wolf series, was released after the first five Lone Wolf films had hit theaters in the previous 20 months. That doesn't exactly inspire confidence. The Grand Gugnall Guignol style special effects can be unintentionally laughable as every slash of the sword produces a geyser of Dayglow's stage blood, complete with silly spray on the wall of sound effects. 
To her credit, Kaiji doesn't look terribly out of place in her role. And there are decent moments when she's faced with the unpleasant task of slaying one of her enemies when she has been reduced to an invalid dependent upon his devoted innocent daughter. As a whole, however, the film can only be recommended to undiscriminating genre buffs. If you're looking for a film that is sort of actually worth seeing for more spewing arteries and overall melodrama, you'd best look elsewhere. Anyway, that's a two-star review. So there's a, like a step up in the level of discussion. I still don't agree with a lot of his points, but I uh, that is at least more thought out than a lot of the other reviews that we've read of other films. He sounds like a person who's educated. Right, you're right. <laughs> He's not just, it's not just like a knee-jerk reaction. Well, despite that, though, I mean, the film was very popular at the time, popular enough to spawn a sequel in 1974, and Lady Snowblood Love Song of Vengeance, Lady Snowblood 2, reunited the director, writer, and star of the first film, although its plot is not based on any story from the manga. Uh, I watched Lady Snowblood 2 last night. That's one I had actually never seen. I've seen the first one a few times, uh, but I'd never seen part two. And, you know, it's all right. It's not nearly as good as the first film. Uh, it's it's the, the third act is pretty outstanding. Still very good looking. Uh, of a film. I think it's still visually very cool, not quite as visually cool as the first film, but the story is just not quite as compelling to me because it's not a revenge tale this time. Um, but it's still worth watching. You know, if you've got that Criterion Blu-ray, it's included or it's on the Criterion channel. So it's worth checking out if you've got an hour and a half, you want to watch, uh, see what the further adventures of Lady Snowblood are. Uh, they did. There was also another adaptation of the original manga called The Princess Blade that came out in 2001. So, you you know, it's it's continued to be popular. But of course, the film's greatest legacy, I think, lies in the influence that the film had on Quentin Tarantino and specifically on Kill Bill. So let's talk, because this is what this whole series is about. Let's talk about some of the elements that Tarantino took from this film because it's like watching this this time I was constantly like seeing one thing after another and I and I'll I'll name a few things and I'll probably not name everything (laughs) that yeah uh, I was gonna make a joke that like I don't see it but no definitely (laughs) this movie is clearly above all others this is the influence for Kill Bill yeah I mean of course uh, both films are about women who are fueled by revenge and Yuki's motivations are very different than the brides and maybe have some supernatural elements you know that's it's hinted at Uh, but her methods are very similar because like the bride Yuki has a list of names like that she's crossing off throughout the film uh, much like in Kill Bill this film uses one of the cool visual tricks that it uses is using illustrations from what looks like manga pages to fill out some of its backstory, which is pretty similar to in Kill Bill, how that movie handles Oren Ishii's backstory, which is done in the style of an anime. Although the specifics of her backstory we discussed on our last episode, oh, a little bit more to Death Rides a Horse, but the style of that by doing it animated is definitely closer to what this movie is doing. And of course the opening of this film and the closing of this film with Yuki fighting in the snow is specifically referenced in the bride's fight with Oren Ishii at the end of Kill Bill Volume 1. And if that visual wasn't referenced enough, Tarantino uses the Lady Snowblood theme song, the one sang by Miko Kaji, Flower of Carnage, in the closing, the end credits of Kill Bill as well. And then you've got the flashbacks where we see Yuki training, which is a, a sequence that's heavily that, that heavily inspired a similar sequence in Kill Bill or the bride's training under Pai Mei. 
uh, there are like specific shots in this film, you know, that, that are lifted by Tarantino. Uh, hell, even the, the finale of this film mirrors the finale of Kill Bill because it takes place on like a crowded dance floor. You know, it's a very different uh, situation, but I think he's definitely pulling that from this from this film as well. Oh, yeah. There's so many things. I mean, just like you said, just like shots you'll see that you're like, oh, I've seen that in Kill Bill. Because I saw Kill Bill before I ever saw this, obviously. But yeah, yeah. It, it just, uh, yeah. Like, it, and even, I mean. Well, there's that shot where um, you see the four people who have attacked her family, like from below. You yeah, know? I was thinking that, of that exact yeah. one. Yeah, you see that with uh, with all of Bill's gang. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's, yeah, I mean, there's just like the the foot on the snow, like just the way yeah, it's, there's a lot of different things. And Well, the and use it, of uh, chapter titles too is a very. Well, that's a big one. Yeah. Which, you know, which Tarantino's done in other films as well, but that's definitely inspired by this film. And, and, and also, this also kind of bounces back and forth in time. The story here, much like Kill Bill does. I mean, Kill Bill is a nonlinear story, and this is as well. Uh, I do love those chapter titles in this, by the way. They they're pretty amazing. Like Vengeance Binds, Love and Hate is a good one. My favorite though is Crying Bamboo Dolls of the Netherworld. That's a pretty <laughs> outstanding chapter title. That should be its own movie. Um, I know, right? But yeah, I think Osada even references that that like that's a pretty standard practice in Japanese screenwriting that you would like chapter the the screenplay. But you don't and, normally put them on screen. But like you that. don't ever put them on screen. And this was the first time he'd ever seen that happen. So I don't know if this was you know the first time ever, but that was uh, he was it was definitely talking about. It. He's like normally they don't do that, but this was he thought that was really cool that they yeah. they had thrown that up there. Um, I mean, even the daughter of one of the uh, assailants, you know, the initial assailants that uh, she kills, that Snowblood kills, coming back for revenge uh, later. I mean, that doesn't specifically happen in Kill Bill, but you can see that story happening. Like, Yeah, yeah. See- it's, it's actually a sequel that Tarantino has talked about for years where uh, Vernita Green's character, uh, Vivica Fox's character's daughter, at the beginning of the movie, Tarantino's always said he's going to do a follow-up to Kill Bill where she's coming to get her revenge on the bride. I don't think it'll ever happen because Tarantino just likes to talk about ideas more <laughs> a lot. But, you know, it, it's a you do see that happen here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought that was neat. It, it, it was, yeah, and I, and I thought that that was just going to be, like, left hanging because um, I'd never seen this movie. But I, I thought it was going to be left hanging and... Uh, no, they actually followed up on that in the movie. Yeah. So it's kind of. So you never seen this before? No, I'd never seen it. Did what did you think first? Uh, did first impression? Uh, I liked it. I mean, the the thing with a lot of these movies is, uh, I think it's like in general Japanese cinema. For some reason, it's it's played out longer than what what we can be used to. I know you, you always hate that, that like uh, I, I bring that up. I, I always used to make fun of Litter Malton for it. And now I catch myself doing it all the time, but that the story. This movie's only an hour and a half long, Gary. I know, but it feels like, <laughs> I mean, it, it could have, you know, there's, there's just scenes of just talk, you know, like that's not, you can totally see it in, you know, in Tarantino movies now, but yeah. you know, it's just not what people over here, I think we're accustomed to uh, initially, but no, I mean, there was nothing about it. I found boring or anything. It just, uh, it's just interesting to like get yourself in the groove of 
how it tells the story. I don't know. It's hard to put a finger on exactly, but I thought it was a blast. I mean, I love uh, just how, I don't know, going into it, what I expected a more artsy film or something. Although I say that I'm not knocking the craft. I just mean, this is clearly also a splatter film. Like if it's somebody an exploitation got a film, if yeah. somebody got a fucking paper cut in this movie, they would lose like <laughs> a gallon of blood instantly. Right. Like yeah. it's just, uh, it's incredible. But uh, I mean, it is a, it is a blood splattered revenge film. It's, it's uh, I, splatter is not even the best word for it. The, the blood sprays in this film. Like it's coming out of a fucking garden hose. Like it's insane, you know, yes. and it's, and it's this bright red blood. Like we've talked about, you know, with like an Argento movie, like that yeah. bright, or, or even, you know, on our Romero series, uh, Tom Savini talked about the blood color of uh, Dawn of the Dead being like a melted crayon, and he kind of hated it at first, but that's what they're doing here, like this bright red blood, but it, it puts it in that comic, that heightened reality of like a comic book world. Yeah, I think by far the most incredible thing about this movie is the visual aspect of it. Well, like the, the artistry on display is, is, I think, head and shoulders above what you would normally see in a quote-unquote exploitation film. I think a lot of that credit has to go to Fujita. I think a lot of that credit also has to go to his cinematographer, Masaki Tamura, uh, because I think they both do pretty incredible work here. I mean, some of the shots in this and in the second one, honestly, are like you could freeze frame them and hang it on a wall as art. Like it's, it's really well done stuff, beautiful stuff. Um, There's also stuff like this, not like you have to think it's deliberate. Like, uh, I don't know. There's just so many shots that are just so perfectly crafted that even if I don't get them all, even after research, like for instance, uh, the very last one, Yuki kills the main bad and he falls and lands on the floor. And then there's like blood splatter and it hits like, uh, the Japanese and the American flags. The flags, and like, yeah. It, yeah. It's just like a perfectly shot scene and has to mean something. I don't even know what that means, but it, it just, it's something like, it's just like, <laughs> you know, there were, I, I guess I'm saying it feels like every shot was very intentional. Like right. they had a, a reason for doing everything in this movie. And uh, that's a level of, you know, sometimes with when we say exploitation film, it can come across as like, we're just throwing, throwing blood and guts at everything for no reason. And well, they, they knew that that would sell. That's what makes it exploit exploitative uh, because they knew that would sell. But but Fujita brought more to the table than just the exploitation aspects of it. Right, right. There's just there's just so much more that went into this. That's that's yeah. pretty incredible. Incoming transmission. Hey, folks, it's your old friend, Mr. Todd A. Davis from the Cinema Shock Podcast, here to ask, are you tired of seeing a random episode of Star Trek and thinking, hmm, I wonder where this falls into the overall prime timeline? I know I am. That's why I'm bringing you a new podcast covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. It's called Computer Resume Podcast. Each week, join me and a rotating panel of my family and friends as we boldly talk Trek like no one has before. If there's a joke to be made, we'll make it. And if there's a poignant discussion to be had, well, we'll try our best. We'll also have interviews, contests, take listener questions, and other things currently deemed classified by Section 31. Those shifty motherfuckers. <coughs>
So join us every week starting in January of 2021 for the Computer Resume Podcast, free wherever you get your podcasts. And be the first to hit us up online now at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or email us directly at ComputerResumePodcast at gmail.com. The Computer Resume Podcast, part of the Slice of Fry Gold Network. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you soon. Uh, I also, you know, I, I know you probably got a lot more to talk about. I want to skip over uh, Toshio Kurosawa. Uh, no relation, by the way. I tried to find it, but uh, <laughs> not, uh, but you know he's uh, uh, Ryure mm-hmm. in the movie, the the newspaper guy, yeah. and uh, he uh, or newsletter guy. I don't know. He seems like <laughs> just like early, like he was doing a psychotronic cinema newsletter. Doing a zine, yeah, yeah, <laughs> doing a zine. <laughs> but uh, anyway, and, that and guy. Can you imagine how long it takes him doing that calligraphy like that? I don't. That that's my other thing. You Watching know, watching Japanese calligraphy being done by the way, is one of the most soothing things. To me. It really is. So I was trying to balance this thought out by, I was going to say like, it's soothing and peaceful. It's, it's fascinating to me yeah. uh, with respect. I just don't know how it works. Like, I'm not sure how many words you're getting in with one of those well-crafted symbols. Yeah. You know? So it looks like it would have taken him, you know, like 40 hours a week would just be doing a paragraph. And, right. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh anyway uh i liked his character a lot i thought he was really good and he's uh, yeah. you know i looked him up to see like i mean he's still around he's still acting also and uh he just was like uh, apparently in those toho days uh uh he first started in the movie samurai assassin um in 1965 and uh he just he's been in especially in Toho, like so many of their movies, he's just like a go-to guy that they throw into something. Yeah. So he's just huh. one of those working actors. A contract player. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, uh, he is really good in this though. And and of course, uh, Miko Kaji is incredible. I think in this film, I mean, she just has a, an incredible presence in the film. I think uh, she says a lot with her eyes. She's got very big expressive eyes and she does a lot with just like that, like, ice cold stare of hers like just glaring at people like i feel like she says so much with that it it made me think of like clint eastwood and like the man with no name like his sergio leone movies like the way she'll just like glare at people the way that he does and just you don't have to say a word like you know what's on her mind yeah uh no no she's perfect i mean she she carries the film right along with the visuals and and what i was talking about earlier uh just Fujita's great at, at capturing like her emotion in her yeah. face. And and that's awesome. Cause she plays it mostly silent, you know? I mean, she doesn't talk a lot. She, I mean, she talks, but she doesn't talk a lot in the film. She's not a talkative character. Uh, she's not, she's about as quiet as I'd say Clint Eastwood's character in those spaghetti Westerns. And that silence though, that that's actually part of what helped her get the gig because that was a holdover from what she was doing in the Scorpion, uh, the, female prisoner films because in those films and maybe we'll do a series on those one day i'm sure we will but it'll probably be a ways down the line but she actually specifically requested that some of the lewd dialogue from the manga be scaled back so she played that role mostly silent and she took kind of a similar approach here as well but i don't know the the way that she plays it and the way that her character is written like the combination of the two is part of what I think ladies makes Lady Snowblood stand out from so many other revenge films 
because Yuki's journey is ultimately a tragic story. I mean, she hasn't really had a life outside of training and exacting revenge because she was literally born to do this. Like her mother had a child with the goal of training that child to murder people. Yeah, I think that 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 aspect you're talking about is I think there's a struggle in there with her sometimes that uh, again, it probably has to be credited to Fujita because I don't know that Asada like threw this in the script necessarily. There are moments in the movie. It feels like you can actually see her struggling with the fact, like maybe even where she meets uh, I can't remember all the names here, but the daughter, you know, who's throwing the, uh, the bamboo. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, like over the they like they have an interaction. Like she seems to care for this person. Right. Uh, then they even when they meet later in the brothel, um, like she she seems to have an affection for her. So there's like parts of her that want to be heartfelt and like a normal person, like a normal person. And then yeah, yeah but she's just like got this built in like programmed thing in her brain that her only objective is revenge. <laughs> like even the moment where they think that the big bad is dead, uh, you know, or whatever. Um, you can see her struggle with that. Like she's, she's like malfunctioning for a second. It almost feels like in her brain because she's just like, what the fuck do I do? <laughs> yeah, this yeah. guy's already dead. This is and- what I was. So I was supposed to be the one to take him out. Yeah, exactly. And and so I think that's her and I think that's Vegeta uh just do, doing the part that you hired Vegeta for, like yeah. capturing that stuff without specifically saying that. Yeah, I, I think a great moment that he brings to it, which again was not exactly spelled out in the script, and I know that because the screenwriter talks about it in, in the Criterion interview, is at the end, after she's beaten everyone and she just like goes down on her knees and breaks down and starts wailing in the snow. Like she's, it's it's almost like she's finally at that point allowed to feel, you know, because she has accomplished her goal. Right. And, and I think in the, in the script, he just wrote the word tears is what he talks about. Yeah. He talked about it being an experiment. He wrote the word tears. Like he wanted yeah. to see what they would do yeah. basically with that. But it it's not just her, like it's not, and he, he pictured it with like a single teardrop, you know, but she like is breaking down and having a meltdown at the end of it. Yeah, because what else is she gonna do now? Like right, I mean, exactly that was what she was that's what she was living for. So we we talked a little bit, you touched on this a little bit when we were talking about the writing of the comic book, but I think the historical context of the film, you know, like we said earlier, once you look into it and you understand the context, it does it adds a lot to the power of the film. Uh, It's set during the Meiji period, which is a period in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when Japan was making a a difficult transition from an isolationist feudal society to a more modern, more westernized nation. So under the, if you're you're unfamiliar with Japanese history, these periods that you, you read about are often named after the emperor that's over overseeing them. So under emperor Meiji, it was during this time that the, the country began to be influenced greatly by Western society in a, in a very short period of time. I mean, this was a period of, I don't know, maybe 60 years, 50 years, maybe, maybe less than that. I think it was about 50 years. But 
they were being influenced by Western science and technology, uh, philosophy, political and aesthetic ideas. You started seeing them wearing, you know, more Westernized clothing uh, and such a widespread adoption of, of radically different ideas than what had been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years in Japan led to some profound changes in their society. So like Gary, you mentioned earlier that the shogunate and its class of samurai warriors, they were gone at this point, like they were done. When they were gone, the, that whole caste system was gone. And this was a caste system which had enforced strict codes of social behavior for like two centuries, you know? Right. And as such, the, the Lady Snowblood character, Yuki's character, kind of exists on the precipice of this new Japan. Uh, it, it makes me think of these Westerns, like especially something like the Wild Bunch, like a Sam Peckinpah Western, where they're set kind of at the end of the Old West, but there are like modern elements coming in. If you've ever seen the Wild Bunch, you know that there is a Gatlin gun that makes an appearance in the finale of the film, which is definitely something that would not have happened in a Western set 30 years earlier. But you've got these characters that exist in kind of a moral gray area, much like Yuki does, and are kind of unsure about how they're going to fit into this modern world because she kind of does go through this film like a ronin, like a masterless samurai. You know, like she just goes from place to place killing people. (laughs) You know, and what is she going to do in a world when when modern technology starts to come into play? And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to think about the film in in that aspect it balances like this idea of uh you know to even hear the people talk about it It wasn't like a terrible period for japan or anything like that it was like a it was well light and shadows again like what a uh uh osada had had said osada says that it's a period where like they were losing their identity as japanese a lot of times because they were adopting yeah, you're so adopting all these culture. other things, which are supposed to help you like move along as a society. But yeah, they're they're like cultural things that you're used to that bind you together as a as a people, you know, yeah. that that you don't want to lose hold of. And it's like some of these things end up getting buried and and people get left behind, or people who don't want to move along, or people that you know, I, I mean, even in the uh in the flashback to where uh, Yuki's mother loses her husband uh, when they're moving into the town. I mean, that's all part of like it was becoming a more militaristic Japan during that time. These people, these uh, what, God, I, I wish I would have wrote this down. They're uh, they're basically like trying to collect taxes, that sort of thing. Talking about the gang. Well, so the gang is directly part of. They're in retaliation almost, right? Like yeah, they're, yeah. they're in retaliation for the fact that things are changing. The gang takes advantage of the situation because they know things are changing. And so they're taking advantage of the situation by telling the citizens, like, you can pay us and you won't have to pay the tax man, basically, when he comes. Well, there's also been a, a, a national draft, which is a very Western uh, concept. There's been a national draft at this time. And they're also saying, Hey, you pay us and we'll 
keep you from getting drafted. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that's maybe that's it. Maybe I'm mixing up some of the stuff, but I mean, essentially, like they think this guy coming in is that guy, so they kill him because they think it's gonna fuck up their plans right for what they're doing already because of what's changing in the world and so it's like it's all like a snowball effect no yeah you know, snowball see, the hey, snowball. I see. yeah I get it. um <laughs> but yeah it's all this effect of like the, the the military complex is occurring the government's changing so the citizens are doing this thing so the gang retaliates and then that causes the death of this guy who they misidentify as something, which also leads to the revenge story of Lady Snowblood. It's right. all a bunch of stuff like we kind of mentioned at the beginning that like would be completely lost on you right now watching it normally in 2021. Yeah, unless um, you've done a bit of research. Like, right, like exactly. Did. I feel like that that the gang, the gang that Yuki's hunting down that kills her her father at the beginning of the film they're kind of symbolic like they are first of all they yeah like you said they're a result of this changing society and the scam that they're perpetrating on these villagers is also a result of this changing society because they're kind of capitalizing on people's confusion about what is going on because things are changing so fast and then one of the gang members uh Sukamoto who I believe is the last guy who gets killed uh, he becomes a powerful figure in this new westernized government. So so by killing them, Yuki is not only like avenging her family, but she's also kind of avenging these, these poor peasants who were exploited uh, during this time because Japan was rushing so quickly towards modernization. So it really is sort of almost a lament for what Japan was losing at the time as well. There's a lot to to take in about this whole story we're kind of covering but in respect to tarantino i guess we can't go too deep into this because we'll eventually get to kill bill and we can have this conversation a little more maybe one day there'll just be a tarantino series where we can have it uh deeper but i am curious uh a lot of a lot of stuff i I ran across for some reason with this one and probably because it's the most connected to kill bill is uh discussing how Tarantino just rips things from other movies and uh, there seem to be a lot of people that have a a hard time with like grasping that that like he's remixing or uh, redoing like scenes he's seen in movies that he liked and is that just ripping them off or is it uh, you know what is it exactly like my thought initially was like well no but you know he doesn't have the depth of all of this stuff we're talking about with Lady Snowblood, but also most of you probably wouldn't have seen Lady Snowblood if not for Kill Bill. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Including me, including you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like you can't really hate on it for that. Yeah. Like it's 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 like this movie. This movie I mean, does we'll, have a lot of depth and a lot of stuff going on, but yeah, I think we'll probably talk about that more on our Kill Bill episode. But I personally have no issues with with the way Quentin Tarantino uh, uses elements of other films. I think it's actually incredibly interesting. And as someone who loves looking into like other films that I'm not aware of, it has brought a lot of films to light for me that I might not have discovered otherwise. Yeah, it's sort interesting. Of, it's sort of Tarantino's version of film education. <laughs> yeah, because I, I almost feel like, and maybe you would disagree, but I, 
I think about movies like, say, The Matrix that like clearly reference kung fu movies or something like yeah. that too, or, or pulling from those inspirations. But because Tarantino is so like open and forthcoming about, his, oh yeah, he'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's almost helping cinema as a whole in that mm-hmm. aspect that he's like, no, Lady Snowblood. Yes, obviously there's straight scenes from that movie in this movie. And yeah. I mean, he loves this movie. I, I know one writer that I read talked about sitting next to him at a screening of this film or sitting like on the row behind him or something. And they were the, this was before there was a good version of it out there and they were watching it. It was in Japanese, but the subtitles were German. And they're not, this guy doesn't speak German, but he has seen the movie before. So he's able to talk about it. And he said, Tarantino was doing the same thing. Tarantino was like with somebody and he knew the film so well that even not speaking Japanese and not speaking German, he was able to like keep his friend up to date. Like, all right, this is what they're saying. This is what's going on. And he knew like every single aspect of the film without even being able to, to have subtitles on it. That's interesting. Yeah. The dude, dude loves it, you know, and he, this is, and, I mean, I don't want to get too far into it because, yeah, we have a whole episode on Kill Bill. But this is Kill Bill's his love letter to movies that he loves. It really is. And this this is the biggest influence. And I think this is a really cool film. I mean, it is, you know, there are a lot of aspects of it that are that you'll see in exploitation movies. And you'll even see in a couple other movies we're going to talk about on this series. Things like the the spray of blood, which, you know, Tarantino uses in Kill Bill, especially in volume one. I was going to say, but, especially in that you know like the house of blue leaves yeah yeah but when you start really digging into this movie you do see that there's a lot more to it like especially like the historical context stuff is super interesting to me Uh, like the the depth of this film is greater than most quote-unquote exploitation movies like another one you mentioned this earlier but the the uh the term that they call her in the film is asura yeah, which sort of is uh, apparently in, and I, I, I'm curious if my old DVD of this, which I bought right after Kill Bill, had had a different translation. But apparently, earlier translations of this, they just uh, they they called her like Child of Hell or just simply Demon. But the term Asura is a is like more specific to Buddhism and a tougher to like directly translate. And in Buddhist lore, it's a wrathful demigod, an asura is, whose desires can never be satisfied. Like they just have to, they 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 have to keep going, you know. And that's sort of similar to Yuki's desire for revenge, you know. Like she, this is what she's been literally been bred for, and there's nothing else that'll that can really fill that void in her. Yeah, um, I, I forget if it was. Uh... Keiko or Asada, As- Asuda, who were referencing this. No, it was definitely uh, it was definitely Keiko because he is a Buddhist. Yeah, and uh, so I, it's fun to hear him talk about because he's just like writing what he uh, Kuike. Maybe that's it. I keep I feel like I keep fucking up his name. It's so I'm Kuike. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, Kuike. So he he knows like he he's a Buddhist. He uh, studies like the martial arts and like sword play and that sort of thing. So he was just, when he wrote the story, he was just like writing the stuff he knew. Um, he was trying to pour it all out into one page. Like he had the, 
uh, he, he'll even tell you in that, that criterion DVD about like, he, he basically started with the premise of like, how do I do this? So he's like, well, there's no female revenge stories. There's no, you know, it's all these guys. It's uh right. that sort of thing. And so he, even the stuff start- he had been writing like lone wolf and cub. Exactly. And so he, he wanted to start with this female and he's like, how does she get there? And so he starts with like, well, her parents would be dead. And then it's like, all right, what's the story there? So he's like working. He he, he kind of takes you through the, the process there of like what he was thinking about. And, uh, but one of his things was, is that, yeah, the, the Sura or as Yuki's mom calls her a, a Sura demon, you know, like says you're going to be an Asura demon, that sort of thing is like, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, I guess you would say a darker side to Buddhism um, that one of the five paths is this because you're trying to reach enlightenment generally in Buddhism, like in whatever way you can, one of the five paths is this Asura path, which is like, you're trying to reach godhood by any means necessary, basically. Right. <laughs> I think so, he even said, I think he even says like, you'll, you'll cut down anyone in your path, even the Buddha himself. Yeah, exactly. Like you're you're just like not taking any shit. Like you're, you know, you're it's the grueling method. It's it's like fighting against everything physically if necessary, you know, to yeah. like reach this point. And so it's one of the five paths that's talked about. But yeah, it's it's interesting like the like you said the thought that went into it. Who knew that talking about an exploitation movie that most people just see as like a woman on a roaring rampage of revenge with geysers of bright red blood would lead to talks about like the, the, the Meiji era of Japan and the, the history of, <laughs> of Japan and, and, uh, and Buddhism. <laughs> that's it, man. I mean, that's the thing. That's why this movie is a work of art and yeah. uh, that's why it deserves to be discussed. And it's a good thing that it survived. It came back. Yeah. It became relevant again. And Criterion restored it and, all of the shit. It's yeah. uh, it's it's well worth it. It's a part of cinematic history and a, a brilliant part of it. And fun. It's just fun to see it's a just, guy get both hands cut off. Well, that's the, the thing. Even <laughs> if you don't know all the like historical context and things like that, like it's just a fun movie and beautiful to look at. Like you 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 understand why Tarantino was struck by like the image of like bright white snow with this cartoon red blood being splattered across it like that's a striking image and you know when when she slices into someone with a sword and then there's that slight delay and then you see that geyser of blood like it's incredibly satisfying to watch it's super fun and just this far away from realism to be like it doesn't feel gross or anything you know it's uh it's not like gore for in, in this in the way that we think of gore in a lot of like a Eli Roth movie, you know, it's a yeah. very different type of violence. There's a, there's a lot of heart that goes into it. And then at the end of the day, if you just want to see what would happen if somebody tries to slice somebody in half with a katana, that also happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I did have another little short, I, I guess we could call it a new segment that I wanted to try to do when we can, when it's appropriate on the show. And that's uh, if you want to watch things that are, similar to this or things that we think would make maybe a good double feature, things like that uh, for further viewing, for further homework for you. If you want to watch another movie that we think would be a good follow-up to this, uh, I wanted to give a couple of recommendations. Of course, the first one 
the easiest one is Lady Snowblood 2, <laughs> which if you're watching this one on Criterion or somewhere like that, you can rent, you can, you can watch on there as well, or you can rent it pretty easily. But also we mentioned it earlier, but the female prisoner uh, Scorpion movies, uh, the first one is called female prisoner 701 Scorpion uh, starring Miko Kaji. And it is visually as interesting if not more so than this movie. It's a gorgeous movie to look at. It is designed incredibly well. It's really cool. It's set in modern times, so it's got a very different feel from this movie. But her character, Scorpion, has a very cool look. Like, she wears this big kind of floppy black hat, and she just looks like a badass. It's a great movie. It's really, really good. As of this recording, all four of the movies are on Shudder. So they're pretty easy to access. They're pretty easy to find. Arrow Video, I believe it was, put out a box set of all of them a year or two ago. So they're, they're very easy to find another one. I actually watched this morning. Cause I was curious about these. Um, we talked about the Nikatsu action movies, right? Just sort of looking into some of those to see which ones I had access to. And I watched one. It was actually by a director by the name of Takashi Nomura, who we mentioned early on in the show. He was one of the guys that, that Fujita worked under. And there's a movie of his called a cult is my passport that is kind of a noirish action movie from this time came out in the late fifties, early sixties. And it's pretty badass. It's really good. It's uh, it's got a lot of, so it's, it feels like a film noir. It's a, it's a story about a, a hitman who's been betrayed, you know, not a, not your most original story, but the way that's told is really cool. And it's got some like major spaghetti Western vibes. And this is kind of before Spaghetti Western was really a well-known thing. Like, but there's some visuals in it that are very Spaghetti Western-esque. And the score, a lot of times, sounds like a Neo Morricone doing a Spaghetti Western. Oh, <laughs> really? So it's it's pretty cool. Uh, it is currently streaming on Criterion as well. It's got a actually the Criterion channel has a really cool uh like three or four minute introduction by Patton Oswalt on it because he's a big fan of the film so a cold is my passport is the name of that there's a couple other of those nakatsu action movies that, that are available on criterion as well they put out a whole box set a few years ago of some of these films that you know they're called nakatsu action but they're really more film noir i think the criterion box set is actually called nakatsu noir because that that is a little more descriptive i think although this one in particular is an action film it ends in a gunfight in the desert uh, and it's a badass scene. It's like these guys meeting to fight, to to shoot at each other in the, like when I say the desert, it is flat land everywhere around them. So there's nothing for them to hide behind. And so it is one of the most unique fight uh, gunfights that I've ever seen in a movie. It's interesting to think about like where these movies all, like if they, how they influence each other, you know, yeah. like uh, yeah. just whether they acknowledge it or not. I mean, I guess Snowblood's one of the early ones, you know, like with 73. Um, But, you know, with the, like you mentioned earlier, like the Argento, like just the blood red stuff, you know, like where did he come up with that concept? You know, because like Deep Red's what, like 75 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't know. It's it's cool because the like Romero is clearly influenced by Argento, and like yeah. uh, so we've talked about Romero, and uh, it just I don't know. It's it's fun to think about like where all these guys, like you said, the spaghetti westerns, like getting mixed in with these Japanese cinema. Um, 
it's just fun to think about like uh, yeah, all these people pulling from each other yeah or all pulling from similar or or they're or they're doing it separately and being influenced by yeah. similar things you know which it's it's hard to track it sometimes but it's very interesting which is one of the things i love about doing series like this because uh, this whole series all all about how it and movies influenced each other you know right hey everyone i just wanted to jump in real quick uh we heard from todd Todd's feeling much better. He's uh, he, he's starting to be on the mend after his bout of COVID, which we are very happy to hear. Uh, he was actually able to watch Lady Snowblood before he started feeling sick, so he does have some thoughts. We wanted to give him a chance to let everyone know what he thought about the movie, even though he wasn't able to physically you know, join us or virtually join us since we're recording on Zoom uh, for this particular episode. So I wanted to just let you guys hear Todd's thoughts on Lady Snowblood. Hey everybody, it's your old pal Todd A. Davis here from the Cinema Shock Podcast. Uh, here to weigh in uh, with my thoughts on Lady Snowblood. Uh, right off the bat, I didn't know this was based on a manga, uh, but I, you know, to my uh, to my shame as a comic book fan, uh, but I probably should have guessed uh, due to the immense amount of plot crammed into such a tight movie. Um, see also Akira. You know, if anybody out there is familiar with Akira, we actually covered Akira on the on our old podcast uh, some time ago, and I was on there talking about that. If you're if you're familiar with the Akira manga and the length and depth and of that particular uh, story, it's uh, the film is actually pretty much the same in that they cram so much into such a tight space. Uh, there's there's no room for error. Uh, there's no room for Jesus in in the gaps in that. Uh, in, in that movie. So, uh, and this one follows suit. Uh, all the performances are great. Nobody seemed to f- be phoning anything in. Uh, I will, uh, go ahead and avoid trying to pronounce a lot of these movies, uh, or a lot of these actors names, uh, just because I'm just going to make myself look like an idiot, uh, even more so than usual. So, <laughs> um, I feel like Quentin Tarantino, uh, got so much more out of this movie uh, than certainly Thriller and maybe even Death Rides a Horse. I feel like he got story and style out of this movie uh, in spades, really. And uh, Death Rides a Horse is great, but it's no Lady Snowblood. So um, now mo- much of what I know about stories from China and Japan um, here, I'm going to put my idiocy on Front Street here. I learned most most of what I know of Asian storytelling from the Matrix trilogy and uh, and their heavy influence, uh, the Wachowskis using uh, Asian uh, influences in that trilogy. Uh, but knowing what I do know, even if it's on the surface level, I know most of the time um, the heroes die. And I feel like the catharsis of the end of Yuki's journey would have been so much better if she died at the end instead of waking up. You know, she's fulfilled her life's journey at that, or her life's purpose at that at that point in time and i feel like that's such a nice closing of the circle you know bringing it all back around it started with the death of her mother and it should end with her death however uh if you do that you don't get any sequels so uh <laughs> um i completely understand wanting the story to go on uh but at the same time you know it's kind of a, a toss up you know do you have one solid entry uh, or do you keep the, or do you keep the thrills going? Uh, I definitely recommend this to anyone looking to jump in and explore Japanese cinema. Uh, I think it's a solid entry and I might, 
might even go as far as to say you should get the box set for your own shelf. I think it would look great uh, sitting next to uh, any of Bruce Lee's movies and certainly Crippled Masters. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much. Uh, my name is Todd A. Davis. Follow the show online. You can follow me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on everything. Uh, keep an eye open for my Star Trek podcast, the Computer Resume podcast. It's going to be at Computer Resume on everything. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Bye. And there you go. Todd liked the movie. I wasn't sure if I was expecting that or not, but I am happy to hear it. Glad he enjoyed this. I hope that you all enjoyed it as well. And we are once again very happy that Todd is feeling better. And we will have him back next week on the show as scheduled, along with another special guest. That's going to be really fun. So uh, anyway... Thanks, Todd, for calling in with your thoughts, and let's get back, I guess, to the regular show where we're going to wrap things up. Uh, so that brings us to next week, then. Next week, we will be uh, actually sticking in 1973, but going to the other side of the world, to Sweden, to talk about a movie called Thriller, A Cruel Picture. You may see it called They Call Her One Eye. Depends on which cut you're watching. But Thriller, A Cruel Picture, a.k.a. They Call Her One Eye, another major influence on Kill Bill and a movie that Tarantino has called the roughest revenge film ever made. So mm, should be exciting. fun. Exciting. <laughs> so there are, are a couple different versions. We'll probably talk about both of them because I think me and Gary actually have two different versions. I think you've got the cut version that was released in America. I don't know, I've, Justin. You told me yours has more porn in it. So I may... 20 minutes more. <laughs> I may have to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> 20 minutes of extra porn. Yes. Oh, <laughs> if I could uh, get educated and get off all hey, of the same movie. <laughs> like two birds, one stone right there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, so we'll talk about that next week. But uh, do you have anything else to add, Gary, for today? I don't think so. All right. Well, then where can you be found on the Internet? I'm at This Is Gary Horn on everything. And Todd's still at Mr. Todd or yeah, Mr. Todd, Todd A. Davis. A. Davis. Yeah, Mr. we'll Todd give him props, even though he you know, bailed on us again with the COVID. <laughs> what an excuse. <laughs> I am at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find the show at cinema underscore shock or at cinemashock.net. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. Uh, you can also buy our merch. We've got some uh, t-shirts, hoodies, whatever you want. You want a face mask with our logo on it? You want a mug? We got all those. Uh, oh, I just yeah. got mine in the mail. They're really nice quality. I'm very, very happy with them. Very comfy. So, very, very comfortable. The hoodie is I've been living in the last few days, except it's like 60 something degrees in January now. Uh, we're we're in, doing in this South by Carolina, Zoom and I can Carolina. smell it from here. Mm, yeah. I, well, I washed it. Oh, okay. I'm not wearing it right now. No. Right. <laughs> it's too warm to wear he it. He just today. showed me his nipples, everybody. I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I guess that's it then. Until next week. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. One good thing about Todd not being here, we don't have to hear his dumb catchphrase. <laughs> Which my wife bought on a t-shirt just to annoy me. There's Johnny, a Johnny has the keys. There's a Johnny has the keys t-shirt. My wife didn't buy the t-shirt that says be excellent to each other. She bought Johnny has the keys. Can you believe uh, that? What a betrayal. That feels feels like you're right. Yeah, it does. <laughs> All right, bye.